We are about to hear the fourth in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of Joseph Plunkett, to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast, and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 87 At this time there are many treatments of the theme of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices. Hello, I'm Charlotte Tannen. We are here to listen to the next of these amazing recordings of the 1916 leaders. These recordings have been brought back to Ireland after a hundred years and will shortly be handed over to the National Archives. We listened previously to the voices of Pierce, McDonough and Clark. Now, if you missed any of these, they are up on our podcast site. Now, we listen to the voice of Joseph Plunkett. Mr Plunkett, as I've explained, we will now record you on my Edison recorder. It, it works by... I, I know how it works, and I'm familiar with Mr Edison. I have an interest in technology and its use. Good, good. Then we can continue. Certainly, indeed. OK. It is the morning of the 4th of May, and I'm in the cell of Mr Joseph Plunkett. So tell me about your early childhood. Where were you born? Uh, uh, in, in Dublin, in the year of our Lord, 1887. I am uh, the eldest son of seven children. You look unwell, Mr. Plunkett. I, I see you've no bed to rest on. I'll try to get them to give you the chair lent me for these interviews. No matter. <laughs> I'll have plenty of time to rest shortly. I'm, I'm concerned you look really poorly. Don't worry yourself. I've been sickly all my life. <laughs> I had pleurisy at 13, pneumonia at 16, and tubercular glands in my neck ever since. Perhaps I shouldn't disturb you. Not at all. It would be disrespectful of me to Mr. Edison not to use his great invention to record my thoughts. Let's continue. Tell me about your education, please. It was sporadic. Ill health, you see. In the early years, I was schooled at home. Then by the Jesuits at Belvedere College, and then the National University of Ireland. My progress was constantly disrupted by visits to hospital, but I prevailed. I had an inquiring mind. I grasped philosophy, languages, literature, the sciences, and latterly, military strategy. Military strategy? An odd jump. But a necessary one. As our plans advanced, I took Tom Clark's ideas and walked the city refining them to make them more effective. God, if everyone had turned out... If you don't mind an observation, sir, I see from your posture uh, walking the city must have been difficult. No, no, I'm quite vigorous. Miss Grace Gifford once described me as very athletic after she saw me, while ice skating, leap over six chairs. Leap over? I know. It's hard to believe. But I've no need to be boastful now, Mr. Maxwell. This Grace Gifford you speak of, is she your fiancée? Up to an hour ago. Now she is my wife. Ah, that's why I could not see you until now. Yes, we were wed in the prison chapel. Now that's an interesting development. Tell me more about your relationship with Miss Clifford. You mean Mrs. Plunkett. Oh, sorry, go on. It was our mutual religious enthusiasm that brought us together. 
Grace was little interested in politics, although her father was a prominent Dublin Unionist. We found that we both shared an intense interest in Catholicism. We hardly talked about anything else. Tom McDonough would regularly tease us. Tom was rather irreligious. In April last, Grace was baptised into the Catholic faith. She suggested an Easter wedding, but I warned her that we may be running a revolution then. She persuaded me to marry her in the sacristy of the University Church on St. Stephen's Green. We would start the rising as husband and wife. But that didn't happen. No. McNeil suspended both the rising and my wedding. Sunday morning, with an emergency meeting of the IRB Military Council called, I had no time for anything else. I'll tell you of my wedding in a moment. Very well. Tell me a bit more about your family. You were the eldest of... Uh, Seven children, yes. That must have been difficult for your parents to provide for you all, I'd imagine. Not at all. We Plunkets had means, and a good lineage, you know. My father was a papal count, and we're related to the 17th century martyr, Blessed Oliver Plunkett. I take it that you're quite religious. My full name is Joseph Mary Plunkett. My family dedicated me to Mary. Mary who? Why, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oh, I see. And where in Dublin did you reside? In Kimmage, where later the Kimmage men also reside. The Kimmage men? It's too early to introduce them. I'll tell you later. Very well. So, how did you become involved in nationalist activities? Through my interest in languages. I could speak several European languages, and I studied Irish for my matriculation. Thomas McDonough was my teacher, and he became my inseparable and highly disputatious friend. McDonough organised the publication of my first book of poetry. You are aware a poet? Was is correct, I'm afraid. Both Pierce and McDonough were also poets. Whilst all three of us were obsessed with sacrifice, Pierce and I differed. Pierce emphasised the solitary, sacrificial gesture. The individual dying publicly for his people. Mine were more epic. Setting the sacrificial figure against a cosmic background. In this way... I'm not sure we have time for poetic comparisons. You are right. I'm not being shot for my poetry. Let me just recall for you. While yet I live, oh, give it not to gloom. When I am dead... But let some joy illume. So, what do you want to know? When did you become involved in the physical force tradition? I joined the Irish Volunteer Force on its foundation and was elected to its provisional committee. That was when I took an interest in military strategy. I became meticulous on matters of planning. So, you were completely immersed in planning the rising? No, my attitude was ambiguous. I supported the Home Ruler, John Redmond, joining the committee, but I also strongly opposed his call for volunteer members to join Crown forces. The volunteers were formed to fight for Ireland, not for England and its empire. So your position was shifting? Yes. And due to my knowledge of military tactics, I was elected onto the IRB Military Council. So apart from Redmond, all was well? No, no. Uh, there was still Jim Connolly. You haven't met him yet, but you will, I'm sure. What were your differences with this, Connolly? Connolly was Commandant of the Irish Citizen Army, a left-wing workers' protection force. It had been very active during the 1913 lockout, 
protecting striking workers from police assault. It had come to the notice of the IRB that Connolly was intent on a rising of his own. This could have undermined our plans. So, what did you do? We arranged to talk to him. Just talk to him? Yes. We spent three days at a secret location, outlining for him our plans and assessing what his were. I've never talked so much in my life. God, could that man talk and reason and argue? And? We agreed to combine forces and tactics. As it turned out, Connolly was essential in the GPO. So I've heard. You mentioned the Kimmage men earlier. Uh, Can you elaborate? Well, the Kimmage men were housed in our estate, Larkfield House, in Kimmage. It was between 60 and 70 men, either fleeing from British conscription or on the run. While in Kimmage, they were engaged in preparing weapons, hand grenades and such. I asked one of these very personable big lad, Michael Collins, to act as my aide, and he accompanied me into the GPO. In spite of your poor health, you seem to have been central to everything. You even went to Germany, I've read. Yes, I was sent to Germany to convince the military authorities there that the IRB plans were feasible. I thought this other gentleman, um, Casement, had been sent. True. But the IRB felt that my fluent German and my military capacity lends greater confidence in my ability to handle the complex and sensitive negotiations involved. Were you successful, as I had heard that Mr. Casement wasn't, and has been arrested? I worked closely with Casement in talking to the captured Irish Brigade. I even designed a new badge for those who would return. What of the German command? How did they react to your plans? Very well. I gave them a full military report and assessment. We had over 100,000 armed Irish men and women across all four provinces. Effective plans to seize the major cities. I requested a 12,000 strong German expeditionary force to land at Limerick, bringing 40,000 rifles. This would incite a popular rising in the west to coincide with the rising in Dublin. Would that have done it? Absolutely. I told them that Britain's resources would be so stretched as to transform the European war to Germany's advantage. I'm confused. You were siding with Germany against Britain when thousands of your fellow Irishmen were fighting for Britain against Germany. Can you explain such behaviour? Opportunism, my friend. The history of Ireland is replete with such examples. When England was at war with Spain, we sought Spanish help. Similarly, when France and England were in conflict, we turned to France. Now Germany. A small, occupied island seeks support wherever it can. So, did you convince the German authorities? They accepted that the plan was daring and possible of success. They were still cautious. I left convinced that the help sought would come. We were to work on the final details together. I then went to convalesce in the US, where I updated the Clonagale leaders so that they could continue to liaise with the Germans. With such meticulous planning, why did you fail so spectacularly? In a word, MacNeil. Oh, yes, I've heard. But some say his intentions are honourable. Indeed they were. But he still interfered with finely tuned plans. We had to inform Plan Gael in the United States of the new date for the rising. And they had to send word to the already uneasy Germans that the arms landing should not proceed as planned. You went ahead anyway? Oh, yes. I was also busy working out ways to use wireless for distributing our message, 
particularly to America. This worked, and I believe that our radio broadcasting was a unique exercise. Well, excuse me, but, but hasn't Mr. Marconi just recently sent a message from your west coast to America? Yes, but in general, signals are targeted to known receiving stations. My idea was that a signal might be just broadcast into the atmosphere in the hopes that someone might pick it up, particularly in America. That is a fairly radical notion. May have been a world first. Where did you acquire the equipment? On Easter Monday, when we occupied the GPO, I sent men across to enter the Dublin Wireless School of Telegraphy. The school had been shut down and sealed at the start of the war. By Tuesday, we managed to get a transmitter working, and we began to send out our message. What did it say? Uh, let me recall. Irish Republic declared in Dublin today. Irish troops have captured city and are in full possession. Enemy cannot move in city. The whole country is rising. Do you know if anyone ever received it? We couldn't get any receiving equipment to work. But there are many active receivers abroad, and I'm sure our message was heard. You seem to be quite ingenious, Mr. Plunkett. I suppose my most effective idea was the castle document. That caused quite a stir. What was that? It was a bogus document purporting to be a secret Dublin Castle memorandum, written in code, containing details of imminent British repressive measures against the Irish volunteers. It also outlined mass arrests, including Archbishop Walsh of Dublin. It wasn't entirely bogus. We just elaborated an intercepted castle message making it a more imminent threat. Did it have the desired effect? It made a huge impact on several fronts. It induced most volunteers to consider joining the Rising. It acted as a smokescreen as the IRB Military Council completed its plans, and it caused confusion among the castle authorities who, had they been planning any such actions, would have stalled as the element of surprise was lost. A notable achievement. And its most noticeable effect was almost achieved. The document initially convinced Owen McNeil that he should support the Rising. I even discussed with him that he should sign the proclamation. <clears throat> ah, but he is a cautious man. You look too ill to have taken part in such activity. I was ill. I am ill. In the weeks leading up to our Rising, I was operated on to remove tubercular glands in my throat. The doctor gave me six months to live. I left the hospital on Good Friday, as there was work to be done. I stayed in the Metropole Hotel, close to the GPO. Michael Collins stayed with me, and Grace visited. Then, Easter Monday morning, what did you do? I went to Liberty Hall and stood with Pierce and Connolly, looking at our depleted force. My plan for seizing Dublin required 5,000 men. We only had 500 this and the 200 from the citizens' army, and without German arms, meant that it was no longer a viable rising, merely an expression of defiance. Still, you went ahead. What happened then? Then, suddenly, the O'Rahilly arrived in a dusty car. He has driven to Cork, Kerry, Limerick and Tipperary, enforcing MacNeil's order not to obey Pierce. Yet here he was. He leapt up the steps and shook our hands, saying something like, well, I've helped to wind up the clock. I might as well hear it strike. How did Pierce take it? After all, this man had just spent the night undermining your efforts. Pierce was philosophical. We knew the O'Rahilly. We knew his dedication to the cause. He just differed on tactics. 
Clark, however, was furious. But we were almost at midday. We had to act. No time for recrimination? No. I fell in behind James Connolly. We marched to the GPO. With Connolly, I yelled, Seize the GPO! I took the responsibility for the various outposts we had established in the area. I studied my maps and advised Connolly and Pierce. I was fully occupied. I was weak, but euphoric. I was convinced that it would only be a matter of hours until we were all dead. Or, if we won with German help, then it was possible that a German prince would be installed as king of an independent Ireland. What? You were prepared to consider that? Would that be an improvement on British royalty? Oh, yes. The German leadership would support policies of de-Anglicisation and promote Irish nationalism as a means of making Britain strategically more vulnerable. Hmm. Let us discuss the rising as it progressed. Well, Clark was happy. I saw him with a rifle poking out through a window, calling to the British soldiers to charge as he wanted to have a crack at them. And Connolly was wrong. He surmised that the capitalist class would not destroy property to get at us. But within days, shells began exploding all around us. The eastern side of Sackville Street was on fire. I was exhilarated. This was the first time this had happened since Moscow. The first time a capital city had burned since 1812. I can't understand this. You should have been in a convalescence home, and yet here you are leading this entirely dangerous mission. Just as well, too. Pierce was increasingly exhausted. Connolly was wounded and out of sight. It fell to me to keep up morale. I don't know this Connolly, but he seems central. How was he wounded? He was fearless and tireless. He constantly adjusted the positions of our forces to meet the British actions. He went out on sorties without any care for his own safety. He instructed on where to most effectively place barricades. Finally, he went out with a group of volunteers into Middle Abbey Street. He went out to the curb to see that they were safe when a bullet ricocheted off the pavement and shattered his ankle. He told us when he finally got back. So that incapacitated him. Finally, Mr. Plunkett, as we're running out of recording space, you have to leave the GPO. Yes, I'm sure you've heard it all by now. We started to move the wounded through Connolly's Way, as we called it. A series of wall breaches that led all the way to Jervis Street Hospital. Connolly refused to go with the wounded party, saying he must stay with his men. Fourteen wounded men and the women of Cumannaman evacuated. The rest of us moved to Moore Street. We eventually agreed to surrender to save our followers. We leaders were sure we'd all be shot, but the rest merely imprisoned. How were you treated by the military? Generally quite well. <laughs> Although I recall one angry soldier, he spotted my splendid leather boots that I bought specially for the Rising. I suppose you looted those boots, he shouted as he pushed me. Michael Collins shouted at him. This man is very sick, leave him alone. In truth, I was joyful. I did not feel half as bad as I ought to. You were happy with your efforts? Very. I heard one of our men say sadly, Ireland will be down for 200 years now. I corrected him by saying that if we had not come out, Ireland might have been down for 200 years. And your trial? It wasn't a trial, but a process with foregone conclusions. Anyway, enough of that. I wish now to speak of my marriage. I was still eager to marry Grace, so that she could inherit my property, 
as she'd been forced to leave her parents' home. Over the religious thing? Yes. So, Grace was brought here and placed in front of the altar in the prison chapel. I was brought in escorted by armed troops. My handcuffs were removed and Father McCarthy conducted the ceremony by candlelight as we had disrupted the gas supply. After the ceremony, we got ten precious minutes of observed conversation. Perhaps harsh, but understandable given my behaviour. It seems that you have achieved all of your aims. Indeed. I told my confessor that I am dying very happy. I am dying for the glory of God and the honour of Ireland. Oh, uh, well, I think that says it all. Oh, uh, and one last thing. Look at that wall there. See the writing? My wife, Grace, wrote that before she was taken away from me. Here, on this wooden panel. Oh, in pencil. Yes. Read it for the recording, please. It says, this is Joseph Plunkett's cell. Ah, it's signed Grace Plunkett. That's my wife, Grace, you know. I know, Mr. Plunkett. I know. Welcome back to our studio discussion. That was the voice of Joseph Plunkett. I'm Charlotte Tannen and we have in the studio to discuss this recording historian Wilmoth Hines, who will assist us with understanding the event. Hello again. Signora Maxwell Hogan, who owns the original recordings. And we have panellists Roger Brazenby and Hugh Coy. Hello there. So, can I ask you, what did you make of that? He was a seriously religious pet. Hugh, you have to understand the cultural atmosphere in Ireland a hundred years ago. Such religiosity was the norm. These men weren't unique in their devotion. I find it refreshing in its simple piety. Their acceptance of a world almost vanished now. I, I have to wonder what sort of republic they would have ushered in if they'd been successful. Well, Roger, this was part of the concerns of uh, Ulster Unionists. Religious freedom was a central issue for Unionists. I remind listeners of the famous slogan from that era, Home rule is Rome rule. This was a very effective message and captured the fears of the Protestant minority across yeah, the island. But would it have led to rule by Rome? Remember, these rebels were primarily Irish nationalists. Uh, surely they would have worked to the tenets of their proclamation, which spoke of equality. Well, Yeats complained about civil rights only three years after the foundation of the Free State, saying that divorce was to be outlawed and reminded politicians of the contribution of Protestants of all persuasions over the centuries. Um, what contribution is this that you're talking about? Oh, well, I think everyone knows there was a proud tradition of Protestant engagement in Irish affairs, political, cultural and economic, mm-hmm. as Yeats reminded us. 
we and I quote this mm-hmm. we are the people of Burke we are the people of Grattan and we are the people of Swift and Stern the people right. of Emmet the people of Parnell mm. we have created most of the modern literature of this country we have created the best of its political intelligence. Was home rule really going to be Rome rule? Well, a self-governing Ireland, where nearly three quarters of the population was Catholic, would inevitably be influenced by the Catholic Church. Yes, but I think if Connolly had survived, we'd have had seen an entirely different Ireland. And if McDermott and Clark had survived, they had plans to deal with Connolly. Of course, if Plunkett had survived, then we'd probably have got the exact same society as we did get. But this this is all conjecture. Exactly, exactly. And what of Joseph Plunkett? What of his final thoughts? Anybody? Wasn't he heroic (laughs) to undergo such an operation on his throat and immediately leave hospital to plunge into the rising? He was a very determined man. Well, he he knew he only had months to live, so perhaps he just wanted to be remembered. What a masterstroke Plunkett's castle document was. It wrong-footed the castle and almost convinced MacNeil. What a different outcome we'd have had if it had succeeded in that. Wilmot, can we have your views on that? Yes, well, (laughs) MacNeil's response to the so-called Castle document showed Mm -hmm. that he was indeed ready to back armed action in the right circumstances. So he was goaded into accepting the rising? Mm, Yes, I believe so. However, he held a lasting resentment towards Pierce, as they had been friends and Gaelic League colleagues for many years. And now he learned that his friend had systematically misled him about a rising over many years. So he really was a man of peace. To label McNeil as a man of peace underestimates mm. the extent to which he and Pierce held a shared vision okay. while uh, differing on strategy. Uh, McNeil, having failed to dissuade the IRB, uh, countermanded the order for the rising in the Irish Independent, in sorry, in the Sunday Independent, uh, severely reducing the number of volunteers who reported for mm. duty on the day of the Easter rising. And do you think this was because he'd been lied to? No, he was a bigger man than that. I believe he objected to the ruse in which volunteers were to be called out for an exercise and thrown unknowingly into deadly action. He he couldn't allow that. Are you saying that the volunteers were tricked into coming out? Well, the majority of volunteers probably agreed with McNeil that it was a hopeless enterprise. That does not mean, though, that they had to be tricked into coming out as some critics have alleged. Historical accounts are clear that the men and women of the Republican garrisons were quite ready to die for Irish freedom and fought bravely for a week against superior odds. So, Wilmot, apart from scuppering the rising, what is MacNeil's legacy? Well, I suppose as uh, Minister for Education, and that was from 1922 to 1925, Mm -hmm. MacNeil was largely inactive because he saw the primary responsibility for education as lying with the churches rather than the state. But his principal legacy was the stringent implementation of compulsory Irish. In this respect, he set a pattern for a state education policy, which has lasted until the present day. Okay, Can we leave that now and maybe return to Plunkett? Yes, yes. um, (laughs) One thing, I I think, Plunkett's use of wireless was remarkable at the time. He used it in such an innovative way, sets him and the rising apart. I believe the message was received at several locations, 
So it was a successful early outside broadcast. <laughs> Thank you. Listen, we have a text in from Declan in Riverside who asks, why didn't Plunkett plan for the rebels to seize Dublin Castle instead of the GPO? He says one sold stamps while the other ruled Ireland. Very interesting. Uh, many have asked that. The castle had a symbolic value incomparably greater than the GPO. It was the seat of British government and had been the target of Pierce's great hero, Robert Emmett, in 1803. It is surmised that they didn't think they could seize and hold such a vast complex. The truth is, the 400 men and women holed up in the GPO outnumbered the reputed 25 troops guarding the castle over the bank holiday weekend. And while the burning GPO became an iconic symbol of the rising it really was a militarily weak location Uh, it was easily cut off from the other rebel locations this is true and the British army faced little opposition in establishing cordon lines around and then between the insurgent Mm. garrisons Uh, the decisive military step apparently unexpected by James Connolly was the use of heavy artillery against the central positions around the GPO the initiative was all us with the mm. British. Another thing, I don't think, listening back to that interview, uh, that Plunkett thought he'd survive the rising. But to him it didn't matter. He, he was already dying. Well, what about his new leather boots for rising? Mm. What was he thinking? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Plunkett was quite a fop, I understand. Oh, right. <laughs> right. His eccentric dress would have set him apart from the rank-and-file volunteers. But for the fact that all recognised his dedication and ability. But I can tell you that the boots started the rising even more showy. Originally, they also had jingling spurs. <laughs> Luckily, these became detached during the rising, or that British Tommy really would have had something to shout about. <laughs> <laughs> but it's surely the swords and the kilts and even the spurs are the vanity of a self-obsessed man. <laughs> and that was just Plunkett. Okay. Oh, this is interesting. John in Fairview asks, is the commemoration the right approach? Well, my blog site has dealt with this over much of the past year. Mm -hmm. And there's been a strong opinion that we should have a rising commemoration. (laughs) Yeah, but those who propose commemoration over celebration show a lack of confidence in what 1916 achieved. Displays an inferiority complex, perhaps even a self-loathing. Hmm. Well, we feel that it's to commemorate is, 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 is more appropriate and less triumphalist. <laughs> there it is. Hmm. You feel that you should recognise the event, <sighs> but not too noisily. I recall, Hugh, that one of my blog respondents observed that revolutions are celebrated when they are no longer dangerous. But commemoration is clearly the right approach here. <laughs> I agree, but for a different reason... If we'd achieved the Republic of Pierce and Connolly, we would have had something to celebrate. Hmm. Commemorate recognises the importance of the event. What's your problem? Well, if you're commemorating 1916, Roger, what do you think it was? What do I think it was? It was... Well, it was, it was an escape route for desperate men. Huh? Well, what do you mean by that? Look, Plunkett was dying. McDermott, not much better. Pierce was insolvent. McBride, a failed husband. McDonough, a failed poet. Willie Pierce had failed everything. Glorious death was a way to escape such 
pressing personal matters for these men. You want to relegate these people no. to the status of personal failures. Look, I'm merely trying to strike a balance by refusing to elevate them beyond a reasonable <laughs> well, point. Can I propose another oh. C word? Oh, no. Please, please be careful. We're on air I'm now, please. I'm suggesting that at this time, instead of commemoration or celebration, we consider contemplation. Okay. Where we regard what was attempted in 1916 and what's been achieved. That's what we've been doing. <laughs> we've been dissecting the event instead of considering did it achieve its aims. Hundred years... Off we could use this period of contemplation to reimagine the island given emergent shape by Pierce and Connolly and to decide what Collins and De Valera did with it. Well, that might help. After all, the rebels were very focused on a future republic. Exactly. Let's see if we've lived up to their hopes. And where would you start? Well, following on from 1916, the year 1919 was probably the most fluidly potential moment in the entire 20th century. We did not fully explore that social plasticity. Can you expand on what happened to you? The dreamers, the poets, were dead. Lazily, we opted for an Irish version of England. As Connolly advised, just painting the postboxes green was never enough. We were too quick to ignore or discard unexplored potentials suggested by the rebels. Look, We've evolved into a stable democracy. What more could the rebels want? The more I compare the principles of the proclamation with those of the democratic programme, the more I realise the lost potential that is still being erased generation by generation. Wilmot, can you explain this um, democratic programme? Yeah, yes, certainly. Uh, briefly, the democratic programme was a declaration of economic and social principles adopted by the first doll at its first meeting in 1919. Okay. okay. Pierce and Connolly outlined many of the characteristics of the new republic. Our task in contemplating 1916 is to see if we can complete their vision. Well, I bet you already have an opinion on this. I have. Your republic has been hijacked. The previous generations nurtured greedy opportunism. Your generation must find a new cultural model, closer to the republic of Pierce and Connolly. Must we? Yeah, this is just a pause in the production. Read the script. What script are you talking about, Hugh? The proclamation left us a philosophy, and the democratic programme set out an action plan to achieve it. There's your 2016 revolution. Peaceful, democratic, but usefully focused. If you do not do this, if you do not complete their vision, only then can we admit 1916 a failure and there will be nothing to commemorate or celebrate. It's a bit late for that. The commemoration is already underway. This week is a bread and circuses moment. (laughs) flag-waving and memorabilia sales as the tills are merrily greased. I don't know what he's talking about. Does anybody know what he's talking about? <laughs> I do. No. Seriously. It's from, it, it's from Yates. Uh, and the quotation is, but fumble in a greasy tail and add the hairpins to the pence. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All is commerce. Ill fares the land where wealth accumulates 
and mendicant. <laughs> and, uh, Hugh, that's Oliver Gold's name. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> More poetry. Wonderful. Mm. Okay, okay. So now we have Jim and Mel High texting in, and he asks us to talk about the Dublin slums of 1916. Wilmot, can I get you to add well, this, to that? Yes, hmm? this is a very serious aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tenements in inner city Dublin at the time were filthy, overcrowded, disease-ridden, teeming with malnourished children and very much at odds with the elite world of colonial and middle-class Dublin. Yes, uh, there was a very well-to-do Dublin existing as well. Yes, there was. The British ascendancy banqueting in Dublin Castle while outside the native peasants endured. There was a scene very much in keeping with those played out in cities all over the British Empire. The Irish weren't singled out for special treatment. It was the colonial way. Weren't the slums terribly overcrowded? Yes, the war. Let me see if I can recall. Mm. Uh, For example, uh, the 1911 census returns tell us that in Buckingham Street in the north inner city there were 16 houses and they contained, wait for it, 1,273 people. In 16 houses. And why wasn't this fixed? Surely no one wants to see such slums conditions exist. You would think so, but <laughs> people living in tenements were failed by Dublin Corporation. The city authority could not develop a meaningful policy to improve tenement life. Terrible. Just terrible. And a housing mm. inquiry in 1914 found that 16 members of the corporation owned many of these tenements. And these corporation members intervened to foil the enforcement of regulations against their properties. Tenement dwellers were also failed by the Catholic Church, who had a conservative approach to state relief of poverty, although the majority of those who lived in tenements were Catholics. They were dreadful times. (laughs) The executed rising leaders condemned the British government at the time, but ironically, for those living in poverty in Ireland, some relief came from the Liberal government of Henry Asquith. This included the introduction of labour exchanges and old-age pensions for the over-70s. In 1908, this was of enormous importance and was a helpful redistribution of wealth. Mm. OK, text in Bertie in Drumcondra. (laughs) (laughs) It couldn't be now, could it? (laughs) Anyway, he says, there seems to have been a lot of intriguing going on at the time. There certainly was. (laughs) Well, can you describe some of it? Oh, well, for example, Redmond, having initially opposed the establishment of the volunteers, demanded that as civil leader of the Irish nation, he should control this military force. That seems like a reasonable demand. Well, maybe, but McNeil replied that a nation's military forces should not be controlled by the leader of a single party. McNeil felt that he had a mandate independent of Redmond. When Redmond threatened to establish his own rival organisation, McNeil was persuaded by Bulmer Hobson to give in to avoid nationwide disruption. And did that solve the problem? I'm afraid not. And this set the pattern for the organisation's subsequent history, in which a faction led by McNeil and Hobson were watching Redmond and were being intrigued against by IRB militarists centred on Tom Clark and allied to Pierce. McNeil's reluctance to split the volunteers by confronting either Redmond or the IRB conspirators left him largely inactive, while others were more purposeful. 
Great, thank you. Oh, and Senora, in relation to the National Archive of Ireland, I understand that we have been in contact with them and they are very excited. In fact, they were wondering if you could go over later today. No, 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 not today. I will prefer to wait until the series is over and the commemorations, you see. Very re- well. We'll arrange to get you over on Tuesday. And once again, the clock has beaten us. Thank you all for your contribution. The next voice we'll hear is that of Eamon Kant. Tune in same time tomorrow or stay for the next show on Near FM. They're all great. Talk to you soon. Slán. You have just listened to a special programme dedicated to life and death of Joseph Plunkett. We would like to thank Signora Maxwell Hogan for allowing us to digitally enhance the original Edison recordings from the period. We'd also like to thank our own Charlotte Tannen for hosting the panel discussions. And we'd like to thank her studio guests Hugh Coy, Roger Brazenby and Wilmot Hines. Tomorrow at the same time, we'll broadcast the voice of Eamon Kiant. Until then, slán. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.